You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenter's homes and without professional equipment. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this webinar tonight for a midwifery town hall. Uh, our COVID-19 hot topics. My name is Kim Campbell. Um, I'm a registered midwife and I'm an instructor at UBC Midwifery. I'm also the lead for midwifery at the UBC CPD, which is the um, continuing professional development division within the Faculty of Medicine. Um, I'm really excited to be here tonight and I will introduce your panel shortly. We would like to acknowledge that UBC CPD is situated on the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This webinar is the first midwifery-specific webinar in a series of COVID-19 webinars that the UBC Division of Continuing Professional Development within the Faculty of Medicine is delivering to support a multidisciplinary healthcare audience in urban and rural practice during the COVID-19 <coughs> pandemic. Tonight, we are extremely fortunate to have several excellent and very knowledgeable people on our panel of experts from the College of Midwives of BC, the Midwives Association of BC, and the Midwives Protection Program of BC, answering frequently asked questions from midwives. To participate in the Q&A during this presentation, we will be using slido.com to receive your questions. Please go to www.slido.com and enter the event code, which is C19-May-6, which was included in your email invitation to this webinar. So that's C19-May-6. We have 60 minutes allocated for tonight's webinar, but depending upon how many questions we receive, the panel has agreed to extend the session an extra 30 minutes to answer more questions. If you have any technical difficulties, please note that the webinar will be recorded and will be shared within a week or so with everyone who registered online. Finally, at the end of the session, please remember to take a few moments to complete the attendance and evaluation forms. You can access these forms via the email link you received for this session. And before we start, we want to acknowledge that as the COVID-19 pandemic evolves, the University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine Continuing Division of Continuing Professional Development wants to acknowledge and thank the hundreds of faculty members, healthcare professionals, and frontline staff like yourself who are working in extraordinarily stressful conditions in the healthcare system in order to provide the best care possible. We cannot thank you enough for the challenge you've undertaken. This free webinar tonight is being offered with that in mind. So let's get started. Um, I would like to have the panel introduce themselves briefly, and then we're going to go through a series of questions that you have asked. So um, Louise, do you want to start with the introductions? Yes, thanks, Kim. Um, so my name is Louise Arts, and I am the Registrar and Executive Director at the College of Midwives. In preparing saying that, I thought, how long have I been there? And was shocked to say that it's been almost five years um, at this point. Um, so time flies. Uh, I have no disclosures, uh, but I would like to say that I'd like you to be open with your questions. Um, so I won't be tracking who's asking what um, or considering what that might uh, mean in terms of your practice or anything like that. Um, so please be open and feel free um, to ask. Also with me from the college, I have Ruth, and I'd like to pass it over to her to introduce herself. 
Thanks, Louise. Good evening, everyone, and hello from Vancouver. My name is Ruth Comfort, and I am the college's Quality Assurance and Clinical Practice Policy Director. <clears throat> I'm also a non-practicing midwife, and I completed my training uh, in 2006 through the UBC Midwifery Program. This is my first night that I've missed the 7 o'clock cheer on my balcony. So at the beginning, I shared my pot and pan, but Instead of banging my pot and pan right now, I will just offer my profound and direct thanks to you who are providing frontline care at this very moment as a thank you. And I'd also like to say that I have nothing to disclose. That's all for me, and I look forward to listening and learning from the other panelists and you, the audience, this evening. I'm going to hand the mic over now to Cash from the Midwives Protection Plan. Hello, everybody. My name is Cash Bassey. And I am one of the legal counsel at the Midwives Protection Program. I was called to the bar in 1992, spent 13 years in private practice in the last 15 years with uh, government. Um, I've done a lot in terms of civil litigation and, um, and now I am one of two legal counsel, including uh, Grant Warrington, who you'll hear from shortly, uh, providing legal services to the Midwives Protection Program. And now I'd like to introduce Elisa Harrison, who is the CEO of the Midwives Association of BC. I think you're actually introducing Grant. Yeah. That's okay. Um, so I, yes, I'm also uh, legal counsel with the Midwives Protection Program. I've been with um, the program for about 20 years now. Um, I'm also a non-practicing um, nurse and um, we're basically here to provide support and to also to thank all of you for the service that you provide to uh, the, the uh, citizens of uh, BC. Um, and just to let you know that we will be here to address some of the legal concerns that may arise, but um, obviously the clinical expertise is in the hands of uh, the other panelists. And thank you for having us. And uh, Alyssa, I think it's over to you now. Thanks. So my name is Elisa Harrison and I am the CEO of the Midwives Association of BC. Um, I'm still pretty new there. I just began about it'll be almost two months. So March 9th was my first day. So that was an interesting week to begin work as that was the week that COVID kind of um, the tide swept in from COVID for COVID. Um, so it's been an interesting couple of months. Um, my background, um, I'm not a midwife, I'm not a clinician of any sort. So on that note, uh, similarly, what our previous uh, folks just said, um, the clinical questions I will be, um, I will be avoiding answering. Those will come from people who have clinical experience for the most part. Um, but I can speak to some of the system issues and some of the advocacy work that uh, the MABC has been doing around the COVID response. Um, I have no disclosures to make either. Um, I do want to say on this day after the International Day of the Midwife and BC Midwives Day, um, just Again, like everyone else, uh, thank you to you all for the work you do. Um, I've been the recipient of midwifery care. Um, I have, I've been a fan of midwifery for much longer than I've been in this position. Um, and I'm really happy to be here and to be of any service I can to your community. And so now I will pass it to Eileen Bell, who is our, uh, the MABC's professional practice advisor. Thank you, Elisa. Uh, yes, so I'm Eileen Bell, I'm the Professional Practice Advisor for the MABC, which means that I receive some of the questions and problems 
tips that come in from members on a really broad array of topics and try and help with those. And in this uh, time of pandemic, that has also included trying to answer some of the questions that come up for members around clinical issues, around practice issues, and a whole variety of challenges that many of you have encountered. Um, I don't always have the answers and I don't know if I will tonight either, but I will try, which is what I do. Um, I'm also a non-practicing midwife. Um, I practiced in Nelson since 1998 and recently retired and have been really happy to have this continuing connection with the profession and hope that we can support you in some ways tonight. That's really our goal in being here, as everyone has said, and appreciating the incredibly important role that you all play and hoping that we can provide some information or support that will be of assistance to you. So thank you everyone and thank you panelists. So we have a series of topics that have sprung up uh, related to the slide of questions that have come in in advance and areas that were identified as probably hot topics for everyone to deal with. And Ruth, I'm gonna hand the first um, title to you which is post, uh, PPE during home birth, number one. Great, thanks Kim. I will do my best here. I think the first thing I'd like to acknowledge is that there are variations with respect to PPE requirements for midwives across the province. And the main reason for that is due to the geographical spread of the outbreak and in part because uh, there are differences in the amount and the type of PPE available. Um, so that's where we're seeing some inconsistencies across the province in terms of one hospital offering one thing, one hospital offering another, and then the whole subject of home birth and what's expected there. So, but that said, from a regulatory perspective, it is expected that midwives would provide care according to the standards released by the BCCDC, their health authority, and that they'll use the infection prevention and control measures and the PPE available to them. So there's kind of four moving parts. They're all intertwined that help determine what the standard would be for PPE during a home birth in your particular region. And because of these four moving parts, this affects how you're able to meet the standards of practice, which is kind of always what the college is here um, to represent. Uh, and in this particular case, it would be standard nine, which is that the midwife would adhere to best practices related to infection prevention and control at all times. So your ability to adhere to best practices may be impacted by the PPE available um, and what the guidelines are in your specific region. And over the past seven, eight weeks, we've seen both the requirements and the availability shift. And we realize this has created some information overload and some scrambling as you adjust your practice and communicate these changes to your clients. Um, but at this moment, given that midwives do have access to PPE for home birth through their health authorities, whether it be their primary hospital site or regional site, we would expect at this time that you would be wearing PPE at home birth in accordance with the BCCDC standards, so that's uh, droplet and contact precautions, and whatever your health authority is recommending for community care. Um, and that, that can be a little bit more in some places, uh, but never less than what the BCCDC is recommending. And then of course in the hospital, according to hospital policy. 
I'd also point out that um, there was intention in the early days of PPE planning that the home birth supplies program would be the central site for distributing PPE and it's ready to go but unfortunately there's nothing in their supply chain to allow for the distribution of PPE through the home birth supplies program. So for now, best to continue to source the PPE for home birth through your health authority as you are currently. And if you're having difficulty, and I think Elisa will speak to this in a bit, uh, to contact the MABC to indicate that you're having um, access issues for PPE for home birth. Um, not otherwise for community-based care, they're kind of two separate issues, but for home birth, if you're having difficulty, contact the MABC. I thought I might also take this opportunity to address a question that came in, which was, uh, kind of details on what PPE midwives should wear at home birth and specifically for water birth. So again, for home birth, it'd be droplet and contact precautions in accordance with the BCCDC, which is a surgical mask with eye protection, a gown and gloves. Um, and on the topic of water birth, I will say that water birth is not recommended during COVID-19 because of the risk of uh, fecal transmission. Uh, but we do know that sometimes clients make decisions that are kind of contrary to what the standard of practice may be. And in the case that a client does opt to deliver in water and the midwife is there to help facilitate that birth, uh, all we can ask is that you make your best effort to ensure the integrity of your droplet and contact precautions. So like long gloves underneath the gown, gloves over top, kind of seal yourself in and make sure that gown is waterproof as well. That's all I have to say about PPE for home birth. I will hand it over to next in line, which would be MPP. There's not, um, Grant, do you wanna go ahead? Yeah, I was just gonna say that the only thing that I think we can add here is that um, as part of MPP's response to the COVID situation, um, there was a comfort letter that was issued. And I'll just quote from that, that um, uh, registered midwives can rest assured that MPP professional liability coverage will remain in place when a midwife uses professional judgment to attend a home delivery without PPPE, sorry, PPE, or decides to restrict care to a hospital setting in order to comply with the BC Center for Disease Control recommendation to use PPE during uh, delivery. I think the gist of that is, as long as you're using professional judgment, if you don't have the equipment that is necessary that we're gonna be there to um, uh, assist you and to defend you in any claim, any kind of liability claim. Um, I hope that sort of clarifies where we might uh, uh, be with regard to that, because we know that it's a, a changed and evolved situation, even from when this comfort letter was drafted, because at that time, there were, uh, there were shortages, as I understand it, of PPE. Do you have any comments from the MABC, Elisa? Yeah, um, so I think, um, I think it's important to, you know, reiterate what Ruth said about the difference between community and for home birth. Um, we, the MABC has been sitting at the um, Perinatal Services BC COVID-19 Steering Committee uh, table for the last couple of months. And one of the, one of the big topics there has been uh, obviously access to PPE. We've been dealing with that at, at every table really, but, um, but at that one, because it's a, an interdisciplinary group of providers, one of the good things that happened there was that um, collectively between physicians, midwives, and, and the other participants, um, uh, 
people did determine that in fact, we would look at home um, as an extension of acute care, basically an acute site in the community. And that enabled the ministry to tell the health authorities, you need to ensure that uh, PPE is allocated for midwives in the same way we would ensure that PPE is allocated for birth in a hospital. You need to ensure it's available for midwives who are, who are attending clients at home. So that language of um, home as, a, as an acute site in community has been extremely important. Um, and, and you can kind of rely on that. Um, now that doesn't mean that there's always easy access. So the, the current um, directive is probably too strong a word, but the current expectation is that uh, midwives can sign out PPE through their local site um, to use for attending a home birth. Um, for the most part, um, we think this is going reasonably well, but there are definitely moments where it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Um, and members um, do contact us and let us know. So we have been hearing some reports of some, some challenges there. Um, what we know is that there are slight local differences. So in some areas, um, you know, typically it's that the site, the local site or the site where the, the client has registered, um, the hospital site that the client has registered, um, that would be the location where a midwife would pick up their, their allocated PPE. But um, there are some areas, specific locations where they've decided to use a different mechanism. So it's really important to check with your health authority lead and make sure that you're um, doing what has been determined to be the best process for your local, uh, your location. For the most part, the default should be that you go and get it from your site, but just be aware that there are some local variations. And, and as people have acknowledged, it's for all kinds of different reasons, including the you know, different distribution of illness and different geographies and uh, things like that. Um, and of course, we are still in the midst of a global supply chain disruption. So again, as we've already said, you're supposed to be able to get PPE through the provincial uh, distribution center, um, through the home birth supply program. Um, it's all set up and ready to go. There's just nothing to be had yet. Um, but we're, we're keeping on top of that. And again, I do encourage um, all midwife members to get in touch with us. Uh, best is if you email me directly um, and let us know the second you encounter problems because we can help with that. Eileen, did you want to add anything? I have a series of questions that have come up. Yeah, I'll just I'll just say one quick thing um, and sort of sliding back to Ruth's discussion about water birth and that in the context of a home birth that a woman might just get in the tub. And just to say that I just want to acknowledge that home birth is in some ways a less controlled environment. Um, it's an environment where the woman and her family have more control, which is one of the reasons that we love it. And in this context, it, it may present real difficulties in terms of preserving the integrity of the PPE or perhaps more support people than you agreed upon suddenly being there. Those kinds of things can happen. And I think it can be very stressful and challenging to deal with those issues in the moment. Um, I just wanna acknowledge that in this, in this group to say that um, that we know that and, and I'm sure that you're all making the best decisions that can be made, but that we acknowledge the stress that can be involved. And that actually fits nicely with one of the questions that were asked. Um, one person wrote, we've only um, 
a colleague is uncomfortable offering home birth despite PPE now being available. Are we expected to offer home birth given that our other practices, uh, that other practices are doing so? And I guess the assumption is, is, is it can they say no because they're not comfortable going out there? Because of their concern, they could be, I'm, I'm not reading into this, but they could have a vulnerable family member at home or they themselves could be vulnerable and um, they're worried about themselves or their families. College. <laughs> I'm coming, sorry, I was trying to find my unmute button. Um, so midwives um, have a duty to provide care. Um, our standards do say that um, we need to offer um, choice of birthplace, um, generally speaking. Um, but where I would lead um, people with this is um, Dr. Henry and, and the province issued a, um, a framework on an ethics guideline. And do you think I can find the wording of exactly what that's called right now? Of course not, but I will. Um, but basically it's a guideline, um, an ethical framework um, to work through. And it does allow um, for you to consider um, where there may be a reasonable duty to discharge your duty to care. Um, and that can include things like you live with a compromised person or you are compromised in some way. Um, so where I would say, generally speaking, um, that duty is there and, and you would normally be expected to provide care. Um, there are There is recognition that during this pandemic, uh, there are a lot of extenuating factors and, um, and rationale. And, and then I can remind people that, um, you know, having a home birth isn't a right. Having uh, a midwife even isn't. Um, what a person in BC can expect is to be able to receive quality care. Um, and so there are many reasons why home births um, aren't necessarily either recommended or a viable option, um, depending on scheduling, availability of backup, distance uh, to the nearest hospital. Um, and all of these factor into uh, that decision-making. And what's most important is that you're having those informed choice discussions with your clients, that they understand what the possible scenarios are, should they, should be once they go into labor, um, that you've documented uh, your clinical decision-making, your ethical decision-making uh, around those pieces. And, um, and yeah, are, are able to, in this case, um, go through that. And that guideline is available. We sent it out to you um, in one of our correspondence, um, and I will make sure that that um, is highlighted. It's actually a very nice um, document, and it provides that, guide, that ethical guideline to consider and ask the questions to determine um, if you're going to provide that kind of care. There are a few more questions related to actual details of PPE, and I think that it might be quite site dependent going between health authorities and depending on what day of the week we're talking about uh, yesterday or today and fast forward on anything. But people are asking about um, wearing gloves at every visit or whether they should be gowning for postpartum home visits for asymptomatic fannings. And I think you answered that, um, Ruth, already. But if you want to just clarify, the other question is about um, 
uh, both birth attendants wearing droplet precautions versus just the primary. Um, so do you have any synopsis you want to say there about what PPE should be worn at what time based on current recommendations? Sure. I mean, I think the first place to look is your health authority website. So I did a brief scan of Vancouver Coastal and Fraser Health to just kind of see where the health authorities lined up in terms of the largest serving health authorities. Um, and for an example, Vancouver Coastal requires all medical staff in community care settings to wear surgical procedural masks, eye protection and gloves for all patient encounters. So that's the, the golden triangle for any patient contact or client contact. Whereas Fraser Health requires midwives or medical staff to wear a surgical mask with eye protection um, for any face-to-face -face contact with patients and gloves when providing direct patient care. So there's like a very subtle difference there. If you're going to lay hands on a client, you need to wear gloves, but if you're just talking to them, you don't need to wear gloves. Uh, so I would really kind of refer you back to your health authority websites who should have some guidance on this. I know VCH and Fraser do. Um, and gowns, from my understanding, unless I've missed something in my review, are not required for community-based care unless you are dealing with someone with respiratory symptoms or confirmed or suspected COVID-19. Um, I fear saying that uh, publicly, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but that is my understanding at this time. In terms of the second attendant wearing full contact precautions, I think it depends on the nature of your relationship. If there's any chance that your second attendant might get in there and help you deliver, you know, and facilitate the birth, probably yes. Uh, but if your second attendant is not going to have any primary care role or possibility of, it's probably okay if they wear um, just the, the mask, the eye shield and the gloves. And that would be the same for anyone doing an early labor check that would uh, if they chose it was necessary to do that, they could do that with that um, precaution without the drops of concern that they were healthy. And then someone else just wanted to remind us or ask the question about plans for sourcing PPE for the community and understanding the supply chain issue. Um, uh, you know, how are people managing that right now? It's a good question because it's not through the midwives, uh, it's not through the Homer Supply Program. Um, so I know, go ahead, Alisa. Yeah, um, so it isn't, um, you know, so we, we are following the CDC guideline, which is about home birth as opposed to community. That being said, um, we know that people also are, are looking for PPE for community use and um, and are using um, all kinds of different things um, as a as sort of a stopgap when they can't access actual PPE. Um, so we're not endorsing using non-PPE. Um, However, uh, recognizing that people are doing all kinds of different things to, um, to what they need to do to feel safe. Um, we are at the MABC, we have been, um, just like everyone else, trying to source PPE. Um, we, we, we debated, actually, we had, a, we had a COVID task force that's, that's us, MABC, as well as um, CNBC, Ruth, Ruth and Louise there, um, and uh, PSBC. And we've talked about this a lot, um, and we've discussed all, you know, various possibilities for what we could do. Um, early days, we, were, we had hoped to be able to negotiate a bulk buying discount or things like that, but um, there's just nothing to buy. Um, so as of today, we're still, we've now located, I think there's five suppliers that we've found that, that potentially have things available and we will be circulating that information, but we can't take any responsibility for 
um, the quality um, or the availability. Um, these, these things are just way out of our hands. Um, so uh, we really encourage people to share any information they have about where they're getting PPE from. We know that in some regions, um, divisions of family practice have um, quite generously opened their uh, ordering options to uh, midwives as well. Um, but again, that's a theoretical offer, I believe. I believe it's still very difficult, even for the divisions also have had the same problem everyone else is having, that they can't actually get the goods. Um, yeah. So the distribution, the will is there, but the supply is just stuck. Um, so that's really the big issue. Um, if we find a source that, that is reliable and we know is guaranteed reliable and has availability, um, we will be looking for, if there's any option for us to negotiate any kind of group uh, buying, we will do it. Um, we'll um, the question is also, is there any money available to compensate practices who have, um, and that's just, you might not have the answer to that, but. Yeah, no, I mean, the answer is we don't have a budget for that, unfortunately. However, uh, we are documenting this as one of the many things that we need to advocate for um, on behalf of midwives um, when we're looking at comparisons between how different uh, providers are able to respond and the out-of-pocket costs for different providers um, in the, in COVID, you know, not just for PPE, but virtual care platforms is another area where, um, you know, there are other providers who do have those funds available to them through a negotiated agreement. Those aren't part of, of our agreement right now. Um, so we don't have any good solution for you today. And it's cold comfort to tell you that we're working on it for the future, but we are working on it for the future. Okay. So the next, um, I'm gonna move on then to the next topic, which was um, virtual care. And I think virtual care is Ruth again. Ruth, <laughs> over to you. Here to I go. Okay, so I'm gonna just refer back to our standards of practice, uh, the Holy Grail, specifically standard 9.1, which is a shout out to you actually as professionals. It states that the midwife will use their knowledge, skills, and judgment, as well as local policies and protocols to plan and implement care. So this means that more than ever, your professional judgment is necessary and valued. And as you look to widely accepted and locally implemented and evidence-based policies and protocols, such as those issued by, I would say at this point in time, the BCCDC and the SOGC for our particular context, um, you can develop an antenatal visit schedule, you can look at risk stratification, place of birth considerations um, in order to plan and implement a reasonable prenatal, interpartum and postpartum um, kind of model of care. Uh, we know that Dr. Henry shared her expectations for us and other regulated healthcare professionals regarding client care in the community setting. And what she did communicate was that non-essential care um, we need to kind of limit non-essential care, not even kind of, we just need to limit non-essential care. There are exceptions for in-person care and that she stated that you as the healthcare professional are best suited to make these judgments. And she also provided some principles upon which to make these assessments. So all that said, if we take the BCC's guiding document on antenatal visit schedule, which I recognize took some time to come out, I think March 27th was when it was published and there was a fair amount of scrambling. We saw some things out of Ontario that were great. We offered something similar. It's all based on the World Health Organization, um, uh, their particular visit schedule. But we can use the BCCDC's schedule now, which I'm sure you all have been doing, to kind of hang your, your visit framework on. And that includes those eight contacts. So one around 12 weeks, one at 20 weeks, 26, 30, 34, 36, 38. 
with some kind of variation in whether or not they should be in person, in person or virtual. Um, and again, that's at your discretion. There's particularly around contact one and two, uh, there is some kind of flexibility in terms of whether or not those should be in person or virtual. Um, you know best, you really do. And so in terms of, uh, you know, looking at each individual client, you need to make an individual care plan based on their risk factors, fetal risks, and you kind of comorbidities or psychosocial issues, um, and then decide whether or not that particular person needs to be seen in person or virtually or a little bit of both. And that's something we're seeing and that is considered quite reasonable if you do that quick belly check. And then you conduct the rest of that visit virtually where you address kind of the support, the education and the information sharing. Um, of course, also there's the requirement to order all the normal typical laboratory tests and ultrasounds, et cetera, on the right time frame. There should be no limits in, or barriers to you uh, taking that, that action as well. I thought I might also take this opportunity to address, um, you know, the kind of the reasonable care in terms of a home labor check prior to a hospital birth. So what we recommend in terms of that first labor check, and I think there's two ways I interpreted this question one way and Louise did another. So I'm going to offer both answers because I think they're both helpful. Um, I mean, I think the first question really is, are home labor checks essential or reasonable? I would say each situation is unique. Um, but if a labor check is indicated, it should be done. That's the bottom line. Um, if it's not indicated, then it doesn't need to be done. But you know best when it's indicated and when it's not. And doing it in the home setting, so long as the client is asymptomatic, you can maintain proper hand hygiene, physical distancing from those who are not the laboring client, and you have the adequate PPE available to you, would not be discouraged or, or not recommended. It would be um, completely to standard to offer that home assessment as indicated. And then of course, back to PPE, uh, we would recommend that, or it's required that you would use PPE for home assessments following the guidance by the BCCDC and your health authority in terms of the mask, the eye protection and the gloves. So that is my take on, um, you know, what is reasonable care. I wonder, going in order here, MPP, would you have anything to offer, Grant or Cash, on this subject? Yeah, um, we often think in terms of liability and with reference to guidance from the CDC and Dr. Henry, uh, it's probably a good time to mention the ministerial order that the BC government issued last month. It has some important uh, legal protection for those who provide essential service during the pandemic. And in a nutshell, I'm just quoting from the, uh, the order, essentially says that a person, not a person is not liable for damages resulting directly or indirectly from someone being infected with the virus, as long as the person was providing or believed he was providing an essential service in accordance with the applicable emergency and public health guidance. So all that to say that if you're following the guidance that's come down from Dr. Henry and the BC CDC, then I think you're in a good position to essentially be exempt from a claim for damages. Just wanted to throw that in. There is a question here actually, and um, this may involve, involve MPP as well as the college. Uh, does BCDC, um, BCDCDC still want us to defer non-urgent serologies to alleviate the impact on their labs? Anyone know the answer? 
I can't say I have the answer to that. That's um, not information I, I have at my fingertips, unfortunately. Yeah. It's but okay. I can definitely follow Look up and get back to you. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry, if there's no other um, questions related to that, I can go to Louise to talk about screening. And that's uh, okay. Great. Um, yeah. We can always jump back too if needed, because I'd like to use this opportunity to fill in the pieces I was missing on my last answer, which is it was our April seventh correspondence, um, and it was the BCCDC who put out the ethical analysis, and it's called Ethics Analysis: What is ethical duty? What is the ethical duty of a healthcare worker to provide care during COVID? Um, so you can find that either on their site or on our COVID, we have a COVID um, dedicated page uh, where we're keeping any of the correspondence from Dr. Henry directly to healthcare workers, um, as well as all of our correspondence that we've sent out to you. Um, so that if you have lost one in your email, you can always find that easily. In terms of um, swabbing and screening, um, Dr. Henry uh, did provide one of those communications um, and we sent that out to you on uh, April 24th. Um, the province has lowered its threshold for testing and it's now asking um, healthcare providers to test all of their clients with any COVID-19 symptoms, however mild. So one important note um, for midwives is your scope has not changed um, in that respect or with regards to that order. And what that means is um, you are only screening uh, your clients um, or essentially those who are pregnant or in the postpartum period. Um, so that piece around your scope remains the same, um, but you are able now um, to screen your own clients um, or other pregnant uh, and postpartum clients. Uh, we have asked around and what most midwives we understand are doing is referring their clients um, to the screening centers. Uh, they are the experts um, in terms of having uh, more uh, experience uh, with doing them. Um, and so that um, is definitely still an option uh, for you. But the important message is that the testing threshold has been lowered. Um, and so referring them to a centralized swabbing site where providers have access to swabs, adequate PPE, systems for dropping specimens off or, and so on. Um, but as I say, you can also do it yourself um, and you should contact uh, the BCCDC for specific guidance. They have a great tool again on how to do the swab um, with really thorough instructions. They also um, have information on how to order the swab uh, so that you would have that for yourself. Um, so again, what we're seeing for the most part is midwives are referring uh, to the centralized uh, screening areas, um, but you are able to, within your scope, swab um, your clients. There is one question related to that, I think. Um, if a midwife feels unwell, what steps should she take? Or they take, I'm sorry. You want to take I that one? answer that one? Yeah, I've got this one. Um, I think a midwife with any kind of respiratory symptoms uh, that we're all very familiar with now should actually refer. There's a great decision tree. We're really promoting the BCCDC website, but it really has all the information. 
Um, it takes you through a nice algorithm. So do you have any symptoms? Yes or no. Uh, have you been tested? Yes or no. And then do you have any symptoms post-testing other than a dry cough? And if you do, you self-isolate essentially um, and go from there. So, so I think there's that idea, oh, I've got a tickle in my throat. I can't work right away. You may have a little bit of time based on your symptoms, but you also may not, and you should get screened right away. And of course, you need to get coverage for your clients if you're solo or if you're on call at that time. Um, the hope is that most of our colleagues are quite supportive in terms of pitching in and helping out when one of us goes down. Um, but I would refer you to that, uh, that kind of algorithm on the website of the BCCDC to help you figure out what to do next. Uh, I hope that answered the question and I'll make sure to send out that link in our communication tomorrow as well. Mm -hmm. There's one other one as well, just a reminder about who they can test. The question was, can we test other folk beside our clients, their family members, for example? And the answer is no, right? Test our clients. Yeah, unfortunately, the answer is no there. Um, there has been no move to um, change the midwife's regulations or the scope around who they can um, practice on. So swabbing is within regulation. Uh, swabbing only for uh, the purposes of midwifery, which would involve someone who's pregnant or an immediate postpartum. You're on mute, Kim. Thank you. Uh, this one may be a little bit related to the topic at hand. Um, the question is, just wanted to make sure that midwives are considered essential service providers providing essential services because midwives are included, excluded from the published lists, um, and that may affect the, um, their access to being screened as well if they're not feeling well and they want to work or they need to feel like they could work. Um, is there any comment related to that that the MABC maybe could jump in on? Yeah, um, I think it's really important to note that those lists were not exhaustive. Uh, the lists that have come out, it, it was a blow not to be included, but it didn't actually mean that midwives were not essential. It just meant that those lists, those lists also didn't include respiratory therapists. And obviously, no one would question their essential need during this, this pandemic. So we did get confirmation from um, Adrian Dix's office, from Minister Dix, and also from Bonnie Henry. Bonnie Henry said midwives are healthcare providers, all healthcare providers are essential. So. Um, you know, I think there's no question that uh, midwives are included in the category of, of providers who are providing an essential service and people should feel very confident in going ahead on that on that basis. And then there's two other comments that are here about swabbing just to restate I think uh, someone might have missed it, but the only person that can be swabbed by a midwife is the client of the midwife, no family friends or anyone else in attendance so it's just the client. Um, and then another person apologized, but um, expecting to change scrubs or clothing between postpartum visits. Is there any expectation that between encounters with people where you're not exposed to droplets or not exposed to um, blood and body fluid, would there be an expectation to change your outer clothing? And I think the answer to that is <laughs> but I can answer that one. Uh, no, I mean, I think there's, everyone has a different level of personal comfort. Um, but when we're looking at kind of the standards issued by the health authorities for PPE uh, and, and what to wear, uh, there's nothing to say that you need to change your clothes, change your scrubs between client encounters. Even in the hospitals there, you know, healthcare providers are encouraged to use the same face mask throughout an entire shift. So um, unless it, it, 
it kind of matches your level of comfort and cleanliness in terms of bringing germs in and out of your own home. Uh, there's no kind of evidence-based reason to change your clothes and your attire and clean yourself other than your hands, of course, between client encounters. Um, I think there's a practical note if you're, you know, spending a whole day out in the community where you can't even go to a grocery store without, you know, wearing a mask and dropping your bags at the front door and getting in line. It makes sense that you'd probably want to take off your clothes upon entry to your own home and wash them before hugging people and whatnot. But again, it's all a more kind of common sense at that stage rather than a directive uh, made by a health authority or a, a governing body. Okay, and then there is a question about self-swabbing and that Fraser Health sent out a practice bulletin regarding self-swabbing. I'm not sure what the practice bulletin said and I'm in Fraser Health, so I went behind the times. Um, can you comment, Louise or Ruth, about the self-swabbing? I don't know. Um, I don't know about that either. I would, I would go to a centralized site if it were me um, that needed to be swabbed. Um, definitely midwives are essential service workers and have priority for screening and um, for results. So I would take advantage of that if it were me. I would uh, also give a heads up. I got H1N1 a few years ago and my husband swabbed me and I'm telling you, I'd have a hard time doing it to myself. It's pretty nasty. So, um, Alyssa, could you um, talk a little bit, Alyssa, sorry, could you speak for just a second about a midwife who may be, become unwell? Do you have any, some, anything to say to that topic? I'll leave most of this for um, for Eileen. Maybe Eileen may have some comments on this. I think what I will say is that um, we just, uh, in today's um, COVID update to members, we just published some early data that we've gotten from a practice impact survey. And um, it was good to see that actually not many people, relatively speaking, at least in terms of the 70 people who responded to the survey, um, the numbers of negative impacts were actually quite small. So not to say that this isn't, I mean, of course, this is a valid concern, of course, uh, no question there, um, but just to reassure people that so far, um, in terms of reports from the community, things are actually going quite well as far as midwives remaining healthy. So that's, that's just a little bit of good news in the midst of all this. But Eileen, maybe you can speak to um, what to do if you're not well. And the, the question actually, Eileen, before you answer is also, is there any support for a midwife who can't work, who's become unwell from the MABC? Well, unfortunately, we don't, we don't have a fund to support and neither do we have it in our master agreement with the government that there is compensation for that situation, which is frustrating because we understand that um, the physicians do have that as part of their agreement and that's something that was prior to COVID. It's just something that was sitting there. We are not able to negotiate that in the midst of this, but it certainly is something that we will be noting and um, that Elisa and the contract negotiation team will be taking to negotiations because we can see how important it is. Um, there are some um, Government of Canada programs that I think probably members are aware of and can be accessed on the uh, Service BC website and you know, for you to look at what is relevant to you in terms of, are you eligible for EI? Are you eligible for um, the program for people who are out of work due to COVID? 
you may be eligible for one of those programs and that would be some kind of support. Um, the other issue as Ruth mentioned was someone in that situation who may or may not be ill but is not able to work because of having worked through that algorithm and finding that she's not, um, we'll have to find someone to replace her. And in the context of a, a group practice that may be more or less simple um, in the context of um, a solo midwife or a midwife in a remote community, it can be much more difficult. And, um, you know, certainly reach out to us if you're having trouble. We don't necessarily have an instant answer, but can try to help. I think uh, there's a couple more questions that are up there, but I think I'm going to ask them to hold just for a second. I think we'll have time. I just want to make sure we get our topics covered. So those who've asked questions that haven't been answered yet, be patient if you if you don't mind. And I will go on to, um, unless there's anything else from the panel about this particular topic. Not seeing any. Yes, go ahead, Ruth. I would just say one thing from kind of an ethics standpoint of not being able to work it's a slightly different bend than, than support, which I think is the primary focus. If a midwife is unwell or is unable to work because of COVID-19 for any reason, um, it doesn't kind of negate the midwife's ethical responsibility to find an alternate caregiver for her clients. Um, and so it may mean asking for coverage from practice partners or formally terminating care with clients. Um, the key there in terms of ethical conduct is around maintaining professional integrity with your colleagues, with your, you know, collegial community in, in finding those supports for yourself. Um, it's a bit of a double ask that you're unwell and that you find, take an ethical approach to finding an alternate care provider, but it is something to keep in mind um, that you can't just turn the pager off and walk away, um, that there's a little bit of administration, well, a lot of administration to take place um, in order to do that properly and seamlessly. Thank you. So um, there are, just being patient for a moment, uh, the next theme that was identified from the membership and from FAQs was related to what was considered providing reasonable care. And we talked a little bit about the schedule and we did mention a little bit about some of those things, but um, I think Louise, you might wanna add, did you wanna add some more in that uh, theme group? Um, yeah, we actually did cover uh, most of what I had jotted down in terms of notes um, for that piece and really around that ethical um, decision of whether you have um, an, an ethical reason to discharge your duty of care. Um, the other thing would just be, as in the normal time, um, there are two policies that um, midwives often use in, this, in these situations where they may have clients choosing um, options that are outside of standards, which is our policy on client requests outside standards, um, and our policy on midwifery initiated termination of care. Um, those are the most common practice questions that we get um, at the college is people looking to apply those standards, sorry, those policies, um, and uh, wanting to walk through sort of what are the steps um, and, and those decision points. So absolutely feel free to reach out. Uh, if you're in that scenario, you, you know, have someone who's 
COVID positive, um, but is determined uh, to have a home birth, for example, um, it's going to be a difficult uh, situation and, um, and we are available to walk through uh, the application of those policies um, with you uh, in a way that um, is ethical and uh, keeps the most people safe um, as possible. Otherwise, I think we really covered um, most of what we were thinking to talk about there. Yeah, is there anything to, I, there's two questions related to this topic. Maybe I can ask them and then MPP might want, and they maybe see may want to jump in as well. So there's one about um, any specific considerations regarding the tension between client choosing water birth and midwives not comfortable attending from the CMBC or MPP point of view. So he spoke a little bit about water birth and Ruth, you did talk about that, but this is a specific question to the lawyers and to the regulator about the tension between clients choosing and midwives not comfortable with delivering that particular route of care. So again, from the college point of view, I think that would fall into client requests outside of standards. It, it's not um, recommended water birth right now, so that would not be the standard of care. Um, and if you know that in advance, uh, you can better work through for example, the policy on midwife initiated termination of care. Um, if you know that in advance um, and you're prepared to do the best you can, um, then you can work through the policy on uh, client requests outside standards. Uh, I think ultimately um, this becomes, um, I sometimes call it the art of midwifery, that balancing those tensions, um, having those difficult discussions with your clients, and your practice and your team, keeping the hospital um, informed um, of, of what's going on um, in the community practice um, in case you're coming in um, and, um, and doing um, the best you can. If you end up in a home birth situation where someone's in the tub and not getting out, um, the college uh, will be there to support you um, in doing the best providing the best care that you can in that situation. And from the um, Midwives Protection Program perspective as well, um, we obviously um, recommend the following the guidelines of the college, but um, recognize also that um, there are certain circumstances where clients um, uh, uh, don't have um, uh, haven't communicated effectively with you or they may have a, 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 an idea of what they want and they, you know, proceed um, without um, really due consideration for um, your advice, your recommendations. And um, we're also here to support you through that process should there um, be problems that, that uh, do arise from that. But again, encouraging um, the appropriate application of the of the guidance from from the college insofar as um, clients seeking care outside of um, uh, recommended standards and um, then if you do have to or you wish to to terminate the relationship um, following um, uh, the appropriate steps um, there and we certainly are are willing to take calls from you in regards to those very sometimes very difficult decisions, particularly um, as the pregnancy um, uh, goes on. Thank you, Grant. There's one specific question that needs clarifying, the laboring in water versus water birth. 
the question is, they would love a clear answer. Are we laboring in water? Um, is it the assumption that it's also not recommended? Um, is that an accurate assumption about laboring versus birth? Maybe we don't know the answer to that one. <laughs> you've, you've caught me again. Uh, I haven't looked recently at the, the guidance on that out of the UK. I think it makes sense if the concern is around fecal transmission, there can be feces in the water before birth. So I would assume the same principles apply, um, but there may be some, some area of investigation there for me to look at and for all of us to look at in terms of those guidelines. Um, like I said, the UK has a, a pretty solid guideline about water immersion during COVID-19, and I think we can check there for clear guidance. I apologize for not having brushed up on that prior to today. Thank you. So there was one last um, area that we had identified or one theme, and that was about um, an opportunity to update from each organization about the conflicting recommendations that exist and I don't know if you guys um, are prepared to jump into that right now. <laughs> if you want to go around. Um, I could start one of the things, oh, sorry. I'll start and then I'll pass to you, Cash. Um, one of the things that uh, we thought about for this um, was around providing postpartum care. Uh, there have been some questions about that. So just as a reminder, I'm the scope regulation uh, gal. Um, so your scope um, does allow you to provide uh, postpartum care uh, to your client and the newborn for up to 12 weeks. Um, however, you do want to um, be careful that um, if you are providing up to 12 weeks, um, that you're referring newborns uh, to public health or their family physicians or nurse practitioners for their routine two-month immunizations, as those are not yet within midwifery prescribing standards. Cash, you want to jump in with one? I was simply going to make a general comment uh, further to what Grant said earlier that uh, the program is going to be there to cover midwives as long as they're uh, doing their best at providing service. We'll be there to not only provide coverage, but also defend any claim that might be launched and cover any damages. I can jump in with the two other kind of hot button issues or, or kind of issues of interest that we have previously communicated as well. Um, there's been kind of some, some rumblings and I think they've settled to some degree uh, given where we are at today. Um, but in terms of you know, midwives contributing to the COVID-19 workforce by providing midwifery services within scope to clients other than their own, uh, that this is permissible. Uh, it could translate into kind of a hospitalist position or a midwife of the day role. Um, but really kind of the standards are flexible enough that midwives can take a collaborative approach to practice uh, in terms of rounding, discharging, labor and postpartum care during this pandemic and likely beyond as well. Um, just something to keep in mind. And then also around continuity of care, it ties in. Uh, but as we know, standards of practice as related to the total number of caregivers uh, is usually set at four for midwives, unless there's an alternate practice arrangement in place. But 
Uh, there is flexibility built in there that you can definitely introduce an unknown or a new midwife in an emergency situation. It's for care providers within reason. Uh, we know, we're all aware that it happens. You know, you have a midwife get sick, you need to call a new midwife last minute. That's okay. This is life, right? And so during an emergency situation like the one we're currently in, it's fine if you need to introduce another midwife or midwives beyond that maximum number of four. Um, if one of your practice partners is self-isolating or is unwell or you're trying to limit the number of midwives in the hospital at any given time, we know that's um, something that's happening across the province where hospitals are asking kind of midwives and all medical staff really to limit the number of comings and goings as much as possible. So certainly your standards are flexible enough that continuity of care can be kind of wiggled around as it makes the most amount of sense. I just want to pause for a second. It's eight o'clock. We did agree that we would go on um, past the eight o'clock point if there were, depending on number it's of questions. So I want to acknowledge that um, for those that have to leave, we understand, but the panel has agreed to stay and we encourage if you have more questions to go ahead, we will get to all the questions. We're just trying to flow. So um, we can go back to the conversation at hand. Anyone want to fill in any of those blanks moving forward? Well, I'll just jump in with, with one extra piece around the conversation that we've been having, which is that um, this is a time of, of ever-changing recommendations and so much that is new and so much that at times feels contrary to the way that midwives have been accustomed to work and the values that we have held that, that now are different. And um, sometimes the issues come up with respect to clients. We've been talking about that. But they also, I'm aware, come up sometimes within midwives groups within their practices, because we're looking at interpretations of what does it mean to do more visits virtually? Where do we draw those lines? And yes, it's our judgment, but our judgments are not always exactly the same and our situations are not always exactly the same. So, you know, a midwife who's pushing 60 may not have the same sense of personal risk as a midwife who's in her 30s or a midwife who has a vulnerable family member at home may have a very different sense of what is reasonable personal risk. And I'm aware just from communications that I've received um, in my role that this sometimes causes some real heartache within practices and anxiety and stress. And, and maybe that's normal, but it's also very difficult. So I just encourage, um, any midwives in groups are having those difficulties to, you know, again, reach out. Um, sometimes just talking it through with someone else, a neutral person can help. We do have a mediation fund. If it actually gets to the point where that's required, we can assist with that. Um, and there are counseling services. The MABC does have a connection with um, the employee and family program that will provide short-term counseling. There are a variety of ways that you can get help. So I would encourage anyone who's having that difficulty to do so. Thank you, Eileen. That's a really good reminder uh, 
I wanted to ask a couple questions from the participants. One is, again, going back to um, PPE. <laughs> it was number one, so I can see why. There are um, concerns about, of course, getting access to the PPE for clinic, uh, for community work, not home birth. Um, and the question is, if we're expected to follow health authority guidance, RE PPE in the community and have none provided, can health authorities provide our PPA for clinic visits? And that would, I guess, also mean, would the um, health authorities be responsible for all primary care providers' private practices? And I think, Elisa, you had talked about that before. Did you want to just... Uh, yeah, I guess the only thing I could really say on that is that the guidelines the guidelines we've seen have are in BC right now are focusing on PPE for home birth and have not actually um, spoken to, to the use of PPE in the community. So um, that's what we've been going on. Um, again, recognizing that that doesn't mean everyone will feel comfortable with that, but, but the health authorities, to my knowledge, have not put out any kind of guidelines on what they're, they, they don't. They don't have anything to do with community practice or private practice, um, and they won't be supplying private practices for any providers, uh, not just midwives. So, um, so it's not a very good answer, but that is where we stand right now, as far as I know. Thank you. And then a question about um, uh, one person has said our local Indigenous community nurses are not offering any home visits due to increased risk. Any guidance here? Um, I think we've answered that indirectly, but uh, Ruth, did you want to tackle that one? Question. Um, so the, the question is that the public health nurses in Indigenous communities are not offering uh, home, or home visits, is that correct? They're not offering, the, the statement is that they're not offering any home visits due to the increased risk, any guidance there, I guess, towards, for midwives. We are doing home visits, but you've commented on that already. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we haven't at this stage issued any guidance or kind of directive around care in the home, care in the community. Um, so I wouldn't say that that same standard applies to um, to midwives. Uh, in particular, it may be related uh, to kind of our model of care. Um, but at this point, there are no recommendations from our college uh, or from public health to suggest that home visits should cease. Thank you. Uh, there's a question about during COVID times, pharmacists, and I maybe this is some pharmacists, won't administer Tdap vaccine recommended for pregnant people and partners. So can midwives order and give partners the injection? I would say ordering Tdap vaccine and administering Tdap vaccine is definitely within scope of practice for midwives for their pregnant uh, clients. As for the partners, that would be a, a stretch and probably a no. Uh, but for the clients, absolutely. And you can refer to our standards for uh, prescribing, ordering, administering medication uh, for more information there. Uh, Immunized BC also has a lot of good resources around vaccine storage and administration. And then the last question, and I invite more if anyone wants to ask anything else, but um, they're wondering about, and this is an IPAC question actually, a uh, person says, I'm wondering if we need to remodel our clinic permanently. No couches, wipe down furniture everywhere, question mark. 
at risk of stealing the platform too much here tonight. I mean, I think these are questions everyone's asking about everything. Um, now is a good time to look at that for sure. There's a reason that that you know doctors' offices went kind of all plastic and uncomfortable, uh, and and that midwifery offices hadn't had to do that until a pandemic hit. Uh, how you proceed in the months and years to come should be guided by by IPAC processes and by the best guidance you can get at the time. I think that maintaining clinic spaces as they are now for the foreseeable future is probably a a wise thing to anticipate. Very sad though. Mm -hmm. So we have no other questions that have been posted on Slido. And uh, this is an opportunity for, I, I guess I should say if anyone has any questions, they have to be put up on Slido uh, for us to respond to. You guys have anything just looking to say um, that you have thought of before we say goodbye? I do have. Uh, I was just looking through the list of questions that were submitted when people were registered, um, and I do think we've covered most of them. Uh, there was a specific question: Do we need to wear gloves at every visit? Um, and I think what the answer we've said is: If you're touching the client, then yes. Um, if you're maintaining your distance, um, not necessary, but. If uh, you're providing uh, contact care, then yes. Yeah, there is another. There is another question now about water birth. Is there a published guideline against water birth for low risk clients? Um, the Royal College of Midwives brief says no evidence for full cessation of water birth and list ways to make it safer. I would agree with that. I again, I didn't come prepared uh, with kind of my most up-to-date guidance on water birth, um, other than than kind of how to how to deal with it if it comes if it presents. But I would agree the RCM uh, statement on non-COVID clients is doesn't suggest that water birth should be limited, but that midwives take an individualized approach. I think different people are doing different things, and this particular guideline is evidence-based. It's probably the only one of its kind right now, and is a really good resource. Um, so I would say look at that guideline. If it's the best available that's applicable to this context, then that would be the one to follow. And we'll circulate that in our, our update tomorrow as well. Okay, that's wonderful. I want to thank the panel unless there's any other questions. Um, I would love to express my sincere appreciation for all of your contributions. So uh, Louise Arts, Ruth Comfort, Elisa Harrison, Eileen Bell, Cash Bassing, and Grant Warrington, thank you very much for your time this evening. I also want to thank all of you for attending and I hope this session was of value to you. Could you please take a few moments right now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you to provide your feedback for tonight's webinar. Webinar, And um, thank you all very much for joining us this evening. We had, I think at one point, over 130 or 40 people in attendance. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy lives to come here tonight. So thank you and good night. Thanks for joining us. And please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 